Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Joe Lang. Dr. Lang has over 40 years of experience in the experimental and applied analysis of behavior, with a particular focus on the design of teaching and learning environments. In part one, we began our discussion of degrees of freedom with a description of an experiment that was done with pigeons. The pigeons were given an electric shock every time they pecked a lever, but instead of avoiding the lever, they continued to press it. And in fact, when they were blocked from pressing the lever, they became upset. So it was, looked like really bizarre behavior. We could easily look at these pigeons and think, this is just crazy. Why are these birds engaging in such a costly and physically unpleasant behavior? And the answer was not that mysterious. The answer was that the lever presses were on a schedule, and when the pigeons continued to press the lever, they eventually got food. So it was press the lever and get food. If you don't press the lever, you go hungry. This was the study that opened our discussion of degrees of freedom. These birds had zero degrees of freedom, and so we saw them engaging in what was truly a very costly behavior. But when they were offered an alternative behavior that produced food without the shocks, then they immediately switched. They stopped pressing the lever that gave them a shock and moved to this alternative behavior. So degrees of freedom, it's a really important concept that we need to bring into focus when we think about training. And in the rest of part one, Joe shared several case histories from his work with patients in locked psychiatric wards. They really helped to clarify what this pigeon study was telling us about behavior and the choices that individuals make, even when those choices at times seem very costly. In part two, we're going to expand even further on this concept of degrees of freedom. We're going to begin by bringing the conversation back around to horses, because, after all, this is a podcast about all things equine. Well, I have a question that I would like to bring back to horses and animals. We talked about critical consequences versus activity-specific consequences. I'd like to sparse that out a little bit and see how if how, if we understand this well, it can make us better trainers. Well, there's a couple of ways. Think of it as, as you're training. Uh, let's say you have two routines your horse does, right? You can give it one signal and it'll do one mm-hmm. thing. And you give it another signal and it'll do another thing, right? And now for doing the routine, A, let's say, uh, it, it gets reinforcer treats or whatever that's been programmed so now it goes, does the whole thing, it comes back and gets its treat. And it's they love these treats. They want to they want to eat this right up. Mm-hmm. Well, if 
in the course of, let's say, doing the routine, unbeknownst to the trainer, the horse like twists its ankle a little bit. Mm. And it has to jump over a little like, you know, barrier, not too high, but maybe just a little barrier that doesn't seem to be for a horse, any big deal. Right. Right. Mm. But unbeknownst to the trainer, there's this tweaked ankle. Mm. Now, if the only way to get that critical consequence for that routine is to jump over that barrier, the horse is going to do it. Mm-hmm. Unless you're a really good observer, no one's seen a grimace on the horse or something like this, are going to be oblivious to this issue. Right. But let's say I have another routine whereby the horse does things, but there's nothing to jump over. Mm-hmm. It just touches a target. Right. Yeah, doing something else, right? For the same. Mm-hmm. And the, the horse can do A or it can do B, right? Mm-hmm. And now you find out that it's choosing B all the time. Mm-hmm. Where it used to choose A. What's changed? Yeah. The critical consequence hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. But now what it says is, oh, what's a, about engaging in the behaviors that it used to prefer, the routine, has shifted so now that it's choosing this one. Well, now mm-hmm. I'll go look and say, yeah, this one doesn't have any jumps in it. This one does. I'm going to go look and see what's going on with this jump. And all of a sudden, yeah, you find out, you know, oh, it's favoring this leg a little bit. Now, I'm not a trainer, and I don't know if the situation would ever arise. I'm just making this Absolutely. Up. It absolutely <laughs> makes sense. I'm no, no trainer, no expert. But the point I'm trying to make is that what having those alternatives do is it can bring to light the consequences. It can also say which you prefer. In other words, what are the fun things in the routine that would maintain the behavior versus another from the animal's right. point of view? They would they eagerly do either one for the food, but given the choice, eh, I like that. Like, I prefer to do in the other one. Mm-hmm. You know, I get to get to you know maybe you know, trot a little bit more than the other one. And I really, you know, that's an activity reinforcer for the for the horse. Um, actually, um, and uh, Alex will probably remember this, Ken Ramirez at one of the ASAT presentations described a situation where they trained these uh, beluga whales, I believe they were. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Yeah, they were beluga. Yeah. yeah. To do routines based on hand signals. And they had an array of trainers. I don't know. I'll pick I'll pick a number. I don't know how many they had. Let's say three trainers, <laughs> four trainers. And they give the hand signal. And sure enough, the whales would go out and do the, the thing. Then, for whatever reason, they did it. I don't know why they did. They took a, a red ball that floated in the, in the tank and tethered it. What was it? I think about 10, 20 feet away. So that the animal could swim over to the red ball. When it got the head, it could either do the routine or it could swim over to the red ball, hit the red ball with its uh, nose and get the fish. Mm-hmm. So in other words, fish could be obtained in two ways. It had one degree of freedom. And sometimes when a when one trainer would get up there and give it the hand signal, that whale go out and do the routine and come back and get the fish. When another trainer <laughs> came up and gave the hand signal, that the fish went over and, I mean, not the fish, the beluga whale, it's not a fish, male, uh, went over and, bing, hit the uh, hit the red ball and got the fish. In other words, 
you'd do it for trainer A, but not for trainer B. Mm -hmm. And the question is, well, what the heck's going on? What is there about trainer A and trainer B? Now, with no red ball there, it would do it for either one, right? But when the red ball's there... Actually, so the the backstory was of that, if I'm remembering correctly, was the whale had stopped performing hmm. well, particularly for this one trainer was not performing for the can one I, trainer. Can I track back even more? Is well, that this this yes. well was was always trained with positive reinforcement, and it was yeah. so good that they would give this beluga to all the new novice trainers, and slowly yes. the beluga became less and less reliable because it was working with people with bad timing, exactly. people who were using instead of using the least reinforcing scenario, they would make it too long and it would be timeouts. And, and so the beluga became frustrated with the fact that these trainers timing and they weren't, you know, as experienced right. as the they others. With, right, they weren't with the program, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah. And, and so Ken suggested that, so be, and by the time it went to Ken, of course, you know, things that really, um, the beluga would just swim away for certain trainers right. and not do whatever it was asked to, especially if it was medical uh, behaviors right. that were asked of it. And so he installed this program where... Right, and the, what it showed was the beluga, by doing that, though, they could ascertain what about the, the signals, for example, governed it. So when they improved the signal, they ended up getting higher performance. So mm -hmm. it brought them into contact with things that the it wasn't just that they no longer liked the fish or the fish wasn't a reinforcer or whatever, you know, all these hypotheses out there. It was they could dissect what was going on in the alternative pattern when the there was one degree of freedom introduced. Mm -hmm. And so this is what is a, a, a could be very important. And as a matter of fact, uh, Sean Will and Masa Nashimoto uh, have uh, an organization they call the Constructional Approach to Animal Welfare and Training. And they have a lab and so forth, and people join in and they and they help them uh, with these types of procedures. And a guy posted a video of his dog training. It was fascinating because he gave the reinforcer, the food reinforcer for the dog, was he taught the dog to go up to a table and just eat it off the top of a table. And then he could also present it, you know, as one typically would out of a bag to the to the dog in his hand. And he would train the dog, but he would always put the food on the table next to it so the dog could always simply walk to the table and get the food. Mm -hmm. Did not have to engage in the signal activity. The food was always available. And the dog would ignore the food. That was readily available. And he said that helped him understand and alter his training to make the, the activities that the dog found reinforcing <laughs> in the training. Is that, you know, the dog could vote. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, not yeah. that one. I'll just walk over here and eat things. <laughs> and the food was then replaced. And he he had a video of it and it showed. And then he demonstrated how it affected his training. But uh, they work a great deal in shelters. And what they've done is demonstrate that um, uh, they can they alter the behavior of these shelter dogs pretty dramatically and getting them ready for adoption 
and they have been able to do so without the use of food. And by looking at what the, the uh, if you will, activity-specific consequences of the dogs and, and providing those. And what's more, that more matches what people do in their homes. So that the outcome is the dog's kind of behavior is reinforced simply by the nature of human-animal interaction. Mm-hmm. And then they, give, they do give a card of guidelines to the adopting parents of what to do. So a dog's jumping on you, right? N- don't push them away. Don't reinforce sitting in, in, in the presence. You let them jump on you, but you just let them, because what they're after, the reinforcer is what? Contact. Mm-hmm. Right? Otherwise, they wouldn't be jumping on you if it wasn't contact. So they, as soon as four paws hit the ground, you pet them with one hand. They jump up again, you stop petting them, you let them have the contact. They jump to the ground, you're petting them. So now you're, you're giving them the contact plus. You're not withholding. So the dogs can get. They're never pushed away. They're never never stopped from jumping. So they always have one degree of freedom. Now if the dog sits down, they pet them with two hands. <laughs> and within a very short period of time, the dog you come home, the dog runs up and sits down in front of you. And what do you do when the dog sits down in front of you typically when you come home? You reach down and pet them, right? <laughs> Look, yeah. you really don't have to do too much to maintain that behavior. Mm-hmm. And um, a dog is, is growling and aggressive in the kennel or even to another dog. They go up to the dog, yeah. they get a little a point to where the dog alerts to them and so on, and they walk away. They give them the same thing, trace them away. And pretty soon they get close enough to the dog where they can switch to affection. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they use food, but typically it's uh, 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 the affection because they, they want it to be maintained in the home. And they have this remarkable adoption rate working in the kennel in Florida that they're, they volunteer. And they do all this for free, volunteer at the kennels. And, and they spend their time on weekends going to the kennels and helping the dogs. And it's fascinating things because a, a dog that'll be very aggressive outside will be completely friendly outside. As soon as they walk outside, <laughs> leave the building, the dog changes immediately and and so on. So it uh, And so they'll show how they use the affection to get them you know, close to the door and they'll shape them right back inside from outside to inside. Rather than trying to get it all changed inside, they'll, they'll start with the friendly behavior outside and shape them inside. So they're very creative and they post all of these things and then they discuss them in their labs, what they did, the procedures, when things work and when they don't work. They don't always work, right? And there are other reinforcers involved for the dog and so forth and other things going on. Mm-hmm. So these are things... So. Um, so this has really uh, revolutionized how they work with kennels and 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 dogs and so on in these environments and and allowed people to analyze their practices a little bit more clearly when they're when there's at least because they have this uh, procedure that uh, they had a dog that you know couldn't be left alone, tear up the house, whine, carry on and fight with the other dog. 15 minutes. Is all it took to to completely wow. change that behavior. What did they do? And, yeah, uh, uh, they use uh, affection. In other words, they would they they would uh, get near the door and give the dog all his loving, and play with the dog and play with it near the door, and then they'd go outside just a little bit, leaving the door open, and then come right in through the door and love up the dog, 
and then close the door a little more, wait just a few seconds, open the door, come in and love up the dog, right? Go outside, 20 seconds, open the door, come in and love up the dog. It got it, so it's got to be like uh, uh, door closed for like 10 minutes or so. Go inside, the dog's, you know, oh, great, let's go, love up the dog. They have cameras, by the way, inside monitoring the dog. So you get to see what the dog's doing the whole time. Go outside, now the dog walks away goes off in the other parts of the room, open the door, come inside, dog comes up and loves the dog, right? They did this, took about 15, 20 minutes. They went away for four hours and the dog was fine. Mm. And it didn't fight with the other dog that was there. And so the, uh, uh, and so what they, what they demonstrate is, you know, dog, let's face it, the dogs don't have clocks. They don't live you know, they don't know for 15 minutes or four hours, probably, for the dog. You know, you know, we don't know what a dog's time sense is, right, really. Uh, we think we do because we they respond to schedules and other temporal variables, but we don't know exactly what they're responding to. Well, they seem and, to do. When I, I'm trying to train duration, it looks like they know the time between treats. <laughs> oh, yeah. they, they it's, uh, it's always well, too long to them, it seems. <laughs> Yeah, you don't know what it is that's that's governing the behavior, though. It's interesting. Uh, and by the way, they don't in the laboratory either. So there's all sorts of bizarre timing theories in animals. But just to to bring it back here a minute, we talk about degrees of freedom, mm. but we also have degrees of coercion. And mm. and you're not really the answer. The question isn't really do we coerce or not, because when you stop and think about it, if I give you two ways to get something. You have one degree of freedom, but you're coerced into doing one of two ways. <laughs> but uh, but the, the coercion point is, is this. The degrees of freedom is inversely related to the degrees of coercion. In other words, the more degrees of freedom, the less coercion I have. The fewer degrees of freedom, the more coercion to the fact is what's well, totally coerced if I have zero degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. And the uh, and so uh, from the trainer's point of view, what you want to ask is, what is my goal? What do I have to do? And sometimes zero degrees of freedom may be necessary. But the goal isn't necessarily always to say, oh my God, I'm I'm a terrible person. I don't, I I only have one degree of freedom here or or whatever, or don't have any degrees of freedom. The question is, well, what is it you're trying to achieve? But beware of the fact that you have zero degrees of freedom. And is there an opportunity for me to increase that? Mm -hmm. I think one of the one of the clearest examples of that that I've come across was the tennis player Andre Agassi, who wrote a fascinating autobiography, which I think is called One. And when when Agassi was growing up, his father uh, decided that he was going to turn his son into a tennis champ. And so after school, instead of being able to go play you know, video games or engage in sports or just hang out with with uh, other kids in from his neighborhood and his school. He was in his backyard hitting balls, tennis balls. And his father designed this machine that would automatically send a tennis ball, you know, at him. And so he would spend his afternoons hitting literally hundreds of tennis balls. And he hated it. But it was all that he was allowed to do. And then he was sent off to a tennis camp 
and at tennis camp, all you did was tennis. And so he uh, became a tennis superstar, won Wimbledon, you know, world, he was an international tennis star, and he absolutely hated tennis, right. but it was the only thing he knew how to do. Right. So he had to keep getting better and better at hitting tennis balls. Right, right. And had a miserable life. Yeah, exactly. Coerced. Right. And, and, and here's the guy who's making a lot of money. And, and he's got yep. the fame and the fortune and so on. But the years where the activity-specific consequences cannot have their effect, right? The only way to maintain his living and his famous fortune is to do this. And you see this a lot of in, in what people don't understand. If you go back into look at some of the behaviors of people who live in inner cities and so forth, and you say, well, why do they engage in these behaviors? And you ask them, well, what's the alternative? Mm. There's a book called uh, Freakonomics. And in the book, Freakonomics is a chapter uh, based on data by a, a actually a sociology PhD student who wrote another subsequent book called Gang Leader for a Day. His name escapes me. But in that chapter, they went and looked at the economics of drug dealing. Mm -hmm. And they looked at the guys on the street mm -hmm. who are on the corner who sell the drugs. You know, you come up to them and they sell you the drug and you walk away and so on. And in their pocket, they'll have a wad of cash. Mm -hmm. They've got a whole bunch of cash in their pocket. Well, what people don't typically know, and you say, well, of course they sell drugs. Look at the money they made. Well, what people, people don't know is that they don't, where do they get the drugs? Well, they're hand, they've got handlers. And they have people that they give that money to. They don't get that money. Only a small group at the top actually gets the money. They actually get paid, on average, less per hour than if they were working at McDonald's. And so why don't they go to McDonald's? Because they've never seen anyone at McDonald's who started working there in an hourly job end up managing or owning a McDonald's. There are plenty of examples of people starting on the street who end up in the group of 20 at the top. Mm -hmm. In other words, what they found was the reinforcer maintaining the drug selling behavior was upward mobility. That was only available through selling the drugs, not available through the other alternatives that gave the same amount of money. So here, the critical consequence actually wasn't the money. It was upward mobility. Mm. And the life expectancy of a person on the street selling drugs in this area of Chicago was less than a person who'd been sentenced to death row. So it, it's an interesting chapter to read. And the uh, and it tells you the power of, of some of these activity-specific reinforcers can also be critical reinforcers, right? It can also be critical reinforcers. Yeah. And the other consequences that you think are critical, like money or earning a living, aren't. So you have to, there, it's not, um, the critical reinforcers defined not, uh, not by whether it's activity related or imposed by someone else, but given a set of reinforcers for behavior, the ones that govern the behavior, the contingency is the critical reinforcement. And that, that can change, right? That can change over time. Yeah, it can change through deprivation levels too, or other potentiating variables. But the, uh, uh, so, you know, I could, 
know, or, or, or you can change by what's on television. Oh my God. Something's all watching like, Oh great. And you, you see the next program. Oof. So my TV viewing will drop immediately. <laughs> yes. And uh, you know, and something else will I'll pick up something else because the reinforcers there will be greater than, than watching this terrible TV show, which by the way, almost all TV shows now are for whatever reason, maybe I'm getting old, but they're terrible. But at any rate, <laughs> few are good. Yes. Every once in a while you get a good one, but, but so this is what we're, we're trying to, and what I find it's a lot for everyday person and trainer to keep in, you know, keep in front of them. I mean, this is a, uh, behavior is, is governed by very simple procedures, but c- that combine and create very complex environments. And so, yes, behavior is selected by its consequences, reinforced. It seems simple, but boy, when you begin to look at the nuances and mm. what happened under these conditions where that is occurring, becomes and the alternatives available and so forth, it can become quite complex. Mm-hmm. The uh, E equals MC squared is a pretty simple equation. <laughs> yes. Which reminds me, uh, uh, I once went into a restroom. And this is at Rock Valley College back in 1968. And on the wall, above the urinal, was written E equals MC squared. The next day I went in and looked up, and there was a big check mark next to it. And underneath it says, show your work. <laughs> 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 I, I say that's some of the best reading I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, you know, and so it's a very similar. Like we think of, you know, some of these uh, relations in our environment is very fairly simple and there's simple principles. But boy, when you have to show your work, that's that's when that's when yeah. we know it's coming. Yes. <laughs> yes. But we we know we know that we want to give our animals. On that continuum of degrees of freedom, uh, you know, it used to be traditionally that people would use punishment and aversives to get animals to do whatever they wanted to do. We're trying to uh, go away from that. We're using positive reinforcement to get our animals to behave more towards what we would like. And we're seeing that that can become aversive if there isn't any alternatives for the animals. So, and and we've heard Susan Friedman tell us how controlling our outcome is a primary reinforcer, which for me was a big aha moment. You know that having choice can be reinforcing in itself. So, we, good. having too much choice can be aversive. Yeah, exactly. There's laboratory uh, evidence for that as well. In other words, you uh, choice is good up to a point. Then yeah. it becomes aversive. I mean, go check and if you look at the response effort and looking at this, and if I don't make the right choice, if I choose this and I miss out on this, and all, it can be, it can make you crazy. Actually, back in the 1990s, we had an influx. I worked at a, worked at some colleges in Chicago, and and we had an influx of Eastern Europeans after the, you know, Soviet Union collapse in mm. Chicago. And people would go literally, saw it with my own eyes, go into a grocery store, stand there and start crying because they had no way of of dealing with the choice in an American grocery store versus what they had in in the Soviet Union, in their area they lived in, or in Eastern Europe or in East Berlin and so on. I mean, it was very difficult to deal with choice at that point. And so uh, we also have to be careful. 
<laughs> in terms of how we how we do this. I mean, it can, you can you're you know less choice can be aversive, too much choice can be aversive. <laughs> you know, we have to let the organism's behavior tell us, and we have to learn how to make choices. Right. You know, you don't give a toddler, you don't go into the ice cream parlor and say which out of these 50 flavors would you like right. with a toddler you say do you want chocolate or vanilla and then they as they learn to make that choice and you can expand the, the repertoire of I choices was, but so get i was it. the odd toddler i always loved the vanilla <laughs> yeah. so this this is this is getting us closer in the degrees of freedom to the societal relationships right that I find so fascinating. Right. So should we should we move to that? Sure, let's, let's uh, go back and, and get, get in our Wayback Machine. And uh, that's a reference to Rocky Bullwinkle's Mr. Peabody, uh, who had a Wayback Machine. This makes a great cliffhanger for us. Who knew that horses would bring us to the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons? But here we are, truly, Everything is connected to everything else. We're about to plunge into a lengthy discussion of the social consequences that result when degrees of freedom are restricted. This is an important topic, and I don't want to interrupt it midway through, so we'll stop here for now. Next time, Joe is going to weave together some fascinating connections between Gold Diamond's experience in World War II the Columbine school shootings and other mass shootings, terrorism groups, and yes, horses. Horses do very much come into the conversation. This discussion may not only give you another way of thinking about events that are in the news, it may also help you navigate some of the trickier relationships that you find yourself dodging, especially if you keep your horse at a large boarding barn or you're active in social media groups. So join us next time as we continue our discussion of degrees of freedom. And in the meantime, train well and have fun with your horses.